Well, good morning, 9.30. How are we? 9.30 is the high-achieving crowd. Is that right? You guys are goal-setters, disciplined. 11 o'clock, they're slackers. Is that right? Let's go ahead and call them out. Thank you all so much. It's been no secret. We've preempted this, but uh, August is the month that we say what? We say happy birthday, Fondren Church. How old are we? Well, you can talk back. Come on. Well, like, don't talk back like disrespect me, but you can, you can participate. We're five years old. It was five years ago uh, this month. A lot of you will remember that we started. And now that we're in the gym, these five years later, it kind of feels like we've started again, doesn't it? This is what it felt like five years ago, just about a, a football field away across the parking lot at Dueling Hall. But we're excited. Even though we have a birthday, we're not having birthday presents, no party hats, no candles or cake, no balloons or big theme or anything. We're just, just mentioning it. We're just saying, hey, here's a marker, here's a milestone, and the life of our church, God, has been faithful. He's been faithful to provide. It was about five and a half years ago we began preparation and planning and prayer. We had a few preview services. I remember sitting down with a guy. He's not in our church, but he was an attorney. He wanted to do some pro bono work, and he sat down with me to help us uh, develop an organization that's 5013C so we could get tax-deductible contributions. That's important. And he said, hey, what's the name of this church? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's just call it, for now, let's just call it Fondren Church. It just, it's kind of a default setting. Let's just call it Fondren Church. But I, and I was thinking at the time, this is at Corner Bakery and Flowood, I was thinking God was going to give us this great name. It's going to be this name change, something like, you know, Mars Hill or Solomon's Porch or something really cool. And people are just going to come to the church because I came up with this cool name, right? And I never came up with a cool name. But Fondren Church is not too bad, is it? It just kind of speaks to a neighborhood that everybody loves. I, if you've been around for these five years, you know I say this a lot. Uh, some of us live in Fondren. We work here, play here, worship here. But all of us in the metro area, we're cheering for Fondren because it's an idea. It's an idea where cultures come together and there's rich and poor and there's so many people in the medical community and there's so many homeless people. There's so many people that are down and out. Don't you see that? In fact, there's one ministry that started. It's called Why Not Now Ministries and it started because a young man left our church. He left Fondren Church one morning and inter interacted with a couple of homeless people. And God said to him, we got to do something. And lives are being changed uh, because of that. So happy birthday. There's an old picture. I think you can go to our Facebook page and look at 2011. You'll see a picture of Brendan McLeod, uh, a young man named R.J. Green, and another young man who was in his mid-20s, I think at the time, Robert Aiken. And there's Robert Aiken, Brendan McLeod, and R.J. Green. And Robert just, Aiken just towers over them. And five years later, I think both of those guys are taller now than Robert Aiken. And Robert Aiken next to him was a beautiful blonde that he's married and has a baby. And in five years, they've grown and we've grown. And God is good. And at a birthday, as we said on that video called Next, our new sermon series, we said we think of God's faithfulness. We look back and we say, God, you've, you've been good to us. You've been gracious to us. But God, what is next? And that's what we're praying for. And we ask you to pray for us. As we ask this all-important question, God, what do you have for us? A lot of church plants don't make it um, past the five-year mark. And we believe that because God has carried us and provided for us that he's got more, so much more for us. Ephesians 3.20 says immeasurably more than ab above what we can ask or what we can think. And so today, in these next uh, five weeks, we're going to present some important ideas to you from Scripture that we're praying, we're praying about. We, we feel like these are things that God has called us uh, to go after. And we're going to talk about worship that stirs me. 
discipleship that develops me, membership that cares for me, leadership that inspires me, and compassion that moves me. And this morning, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to, to the Psalms, to the book of Psalms, and to the 73rd chapter, Psalm 73. And a lot of you know this, but smack dab, sandwiched in the middle of our Bibles, is a songbook. One friend I have, he calls it the Old Testament iTunes. And it's right there in the middle. And it tells us, it speaks so poignantly to the human condition, to the human experience, things that we all experience in our regular lives. And in the Psalms, which I think is, is instructive to us, and hear me when I say this, you know, in churches today, and we could be guilty of this if we're not careful, we tend to think that there's only one way to worship. Ever notice that? We think, what way is that, by the way? It's, it's our way, right? It's the way we do worship. And you can listen in, to family conversations. You can see it, hear it at coffee shops and lunch breaks and office places. We, we talk about our churches and we talk about other churches and we act like there's only one way to worship. And even in our church, we act like that can be the case. And I'll tell you a little bit more in a minute, but we're exploring ways to, to be more creative, to do some things different. You'll hear from different teachers in the days ahead. We're going to flip the order of worship. We're going to try things to be creative, to get past your defenses, to do things so that we can truly be stirred in our worship. But what's interesting about the Psalms is that there's discrepancy in the Psalms. There's subject discrepancy. There's there, is, there are psalms, as some of you know, there are psalms about God's creative genius. Psalm 19, he walked out into the starry host and looked above and said, what the heavens declare the glory of God. The stars in the night sky, they pour forth speech. There's subjects in the psalms about God, our creator. And there's subjects, writings in the psalms about the human pain and experience of feeling like, God, where are you? I'm crying out to you, but, but where are you? I want to believe, but look at my, my faith. It's wavering. So there's, and there's also not just subject discrepancy, there's length discrepancy. Psalm 150 is the largest chapter in all the Bible, but there's very short psalms with just a few words. There's some psalms that repeat themselves over and over again. Some of you don't like praise songs so much, or you're critical, right, of praise songs because of the repetition. But just be careful in your analysis because there are psalms that repeat themselves over and over again. Don't you know sometimes we need to repeat ourselves? Some things need to be repeated. And then there are psalms that are very fluid. They just move really fast. And there are psalms like Psalm 4610, Be still. And know that I am God. That's a psalm that we look at and say, turn the volume down. Let's be quiet. That's real worship is contemplative. It's, it's done in silence. So that's Psalm 46.10. You know that you can go over to Psalm 47 in the first five verses, talk about shout to the Lord. In fact, pump up the volume. Get out the trumpet, it says. So there's subject discrepancy, length discrepancy. There's volume discrepancy. And I'm telling you, church, there's many different ways that God wants us to worship him. Psalm 73, let's look at it together. I think we'll have it on the screen. This is, uh, as it says, the first four words there are an introduction. You probably have it in your study Bible if you have it open. A lot of the Psalms, most of the Psalms are written by David. This one is not. It was a, a, a collection of, uh, it's a collection of songs by a man named Asaph. Here he, here he goes, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. 
But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, this is what I call a hinge verse. Verse 17, I believe it is. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. The most famous verse in this psalm, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who, far, who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Here you see, in verse 1 of Psalm 73, you see the writer, the psalmist, we'll call him today. The psalmist declares what I believe. One of the favorite songs that we sing at Fondren is I believe. I believe it's the, the creed. The, this is what I believe. I believe in God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the Word, the resurrection. This is what I believe. It is healthy and it's good. In fact, it's what unites us to come together as a people of God and say here is what I believe. And here the psalmist says, I believe. What does he believe? He starts off with one, verse 1 saying, truly, that's a funny word if you consider verse 2 and where he goes, but truly he says what? I believe God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. That's what I believe. Verse 1, what I believe. Verse 2, how I feel. But my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. There's a gap, there's a gulf, there's a chasm, there's a divide between what he believes and what he feels. You ever felt that way? Here's, here's, man, God is good. But wait a second. Man, I'm on the edge. My feet, my steps, stumbling, slipping, I don't know. And you'll see between this declaration of belief and this expression of how he feels, you'll see doubt come. And this doubt is caused by what? Look down if you have an open Bible. Doubt is caused by what? In a word, it's caused by envy. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, that's poetic. You don't speak like that in everyday language, do you? 
I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, you don't speak so poetically, but I think you and I, we feel that. Because we like to declare God is good, right? God is good. God is good. God is good to us. God is good to who? God is good to those who are good. That makes sense. I'm okay with that. That aligns with what I want to believe, that God is good to those who are good. But can life, can God be good to those who aren't good? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What is envy? Do you have it in your heart? Have you felt it this week? This is envy right here. Envy is when you want someone else's life. I was at a coffee shop. I sat at this one seat for five hours. And in that time, I had some people coming around me, sitting and having their conversation, studying, doing their thing. And I don't want to call it eavesdropping. Let's just say I was attentive to the conversations going on around me, right? And there was a a table and college girls started coming in. And one by one or two by two, they were loud and boisterous. And they were, um, let me be clear, two were in college. And I know this because I was attentive to their conversation. And the rest of them were high school seniors, okay? Some of you have this. Or some people aren't here today because they're checking in their high school, their college freshmen. And these girls, part of what they talked about was what they were about to go to, what college. And they were going to different places. And the one girl that spoke up, she was a student at Georgetown, uh, just outside of the Beltway of Washington, D.C. And she was talking to these girls about what they have to look forward to. They talked about the freshman 15 and the societal pressure and classes and extracurricular and all that stuff. And this one girl said, oh, my roommate, gosh, my roommate, my freshman year this past year, a model. Like, really, y'all, you don't know, like, she's a model. Six feet tall, blonde, leggy. She just began describing her roommate. And you could tell that there was envy in her heart. You could tell she wanted someone else's life. The girls spoke into that. Because sometimes envy can be spotted. Sometimes envy can be called out. When we want someone's looks, when we want someone's personality, when we want what someone else has, that's envy. And it is so corroding, so corruptive in our life. But let's call envy for what it really is. Envy is what? It's doubt. Doubt that God is with you and that he is for you. Here's what one writer said about envy and two other vices. Negative emotions, and let me tell you, I'm I'm a pastor. Those first two words, I deal with them. Negative emotions. I'm learning. I'm learning how deceitful my heart is, how prone it is to sin, but those, I've got to take it to the Lord. You do too. Negative emotions like loneliness, here's our word, envy, what Psalm 73 tells us about. Loneliness, envy, and guilt have an important role to play in a happy life. They're big flashing signs that something needs to change. When you sit there and you want to be the model or you want to look or have what somebody else looks like or has, that's a big flashing sign. It's a warning sign. I'm not an ASE certified automotive technician, but I know people who know cars say when a light comes on, you need to check it out. And envy, guys, it can be a light. 
It can be a light that comes on to say, I need to take this. I need to take it deeper before the Lord. How does the psalmist express envy here? He seems to say that everything that they do, the wicked, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He began to talk about the wicked and he says, it seems like everything they do, it comes out good. Every time they roll the dice, it turns out sevens or whatever dice is supposed to turn out when you roll them, I wouldn't know I'm a preacher. But it just seems like everything is going well for them. In verses 6 through 9, you'll see some poetic expressions that indicate that the wicked, they are smug and they are arrogant. One of the things it says is they wear their pride like a necklace. In other words, bling, bling, they're showing it off. They're show-offs. And not only that, verse 10 indicates that people stop and they listen to them. People are following them. They're, listen, we would say today they're role models. Now, parents, you can feel me when I say this, right? It's been a tough time to parent, especially teenagers, when your teenagers are watching and listening and following people that aren't following after God, that are going after very evil things, but people are lining up to listen to them. And that's troubling, isn't it? We want to say God is good. God is good to good people. But when good things happen to bad people, that's very troubling. And now they're, they're mocking God. They're openly mocking God. They're wearing it, their pride as a necklace. They're show-offs. But now they're, they're even role models. Other people are following their ways. The psalmist gets to a point that we all get to in life. And we just begin to think about, you ever do this? You think about something so long and so hard it just gets wearisome. And you think, if I think about this a little more, maybe if I journal, if I write it, if I process it, Just think on it, I'll get some insight. But the longer he thinks, the more wearisome it just seems to be. And to me, the most vulnerable point in this passage, I want you to hear this this morning. The most vulnerable point, I think, is when he gets to this place, I believe in verse 13. In essence, he's saying, I've been doing what's right. I've been living the good life. There's innocence in me. Look at the pain. Look at the problems. Look at the frustration. And I think as we read this, it behooves us to stop and say, why do you serve God? Why do we follow after Him? Scripture says we we love because He first loved us. But as you begin to love and follow Him, are you doing it for the easy life? Are you willing to wait In order to be blessed, he struggles here. He's struggling badly. Waiting and doing the right thing is not always readily blessed. And here he is saying, God, I'm doing it the right way and look at my pain. And they're not. And can we just agree together? That's problematic. God, where are you? Where are you in the midst of this? But we see what I said earlier as we read the passage from the screen. There's this hinge verse of verse 17. He says, until, remember the gap, remember the chasm, the divide, the gulf between what he believes and what he feels. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, that's that phrase of contrast. It's, uh, the Bible has several instances where that phrase is used, the most famous in Joshua 24, 15. But as for me, what? But as for me and my house, 
We will serve the Lord. Micah 7, 7, the writer says that the prophet of old, but as for me, they're drawing a contrast. Some of the greatest words ever spoken in American history. Give me liberty or give me death. What was said right before that? But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. There's a contrast. But as for me, God, you're good. You're good to those who are good. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps nearly slipped. I grew envious of the arrogant as I observed the prosperity of the wicked. Then he, he talks about how he sees that. Now, let's agree that he has an exaggerated regard for all that, right? He's looking at them saying they always prosper. They're always at ease. And here's what I want to tell you. If you struggle with depression, I want to be sensitive when I say this. If you struggle with depression, you know what I'm talking about. And I, I'm telling you, even in my own life, I'm going to lower the guard a little bit. When, when I'm struggling circumstantially, and things start to go negative in my head, it gets more and more and more negative to the point where I'm exaggerating. You know, all the bad people, they're just prospering and look at me. And of course, I'm exaggerating my own goodness, right? I'm exaggerating my own innocence. I'm exaggerating my righteousness. But what about me? God, where's the blessing? Why, why are you taking care of them and not me? Why, 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 why? Oh, just, it's just driving me crazy until, would you look down if you have an open Bible to verse 17? Until, now I understand it's going to seem a little too sim simplistic, but what? Until what? Until he went into the sanctuary. Now preachers love this verse, right? It's like go to church. Go to church and get perspective. It's a little deeper than that. We'll examine it for a moment. But he says, until I went into the sanctuary. Now, worship is always about what we give to God. The word, our English word, worship, some of you know it means to ascribe worth. Some of you, honestly, we have some people, whether in the gym at 930 or the sanctuary at 11, no matter what church, we have people who gather, and there's some who come in and say, God, today I want to ascribe worth to you. You're good. I'm telling you, you're good. And by the way, I hope that's some of you today. I know it is. I mean, God is good, and you have stuff to praise God for, and you want to come today with other believers and make that declaration. Some of you come today and you say, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't seem like God is really benefiting me. And none of the decisions I make are influenced by him. And some of us are in the middle. But the idea of worship is that we would come and that we would gather and that we would what? We would ascribe worth to God. It, we would give back to Him. We would give to Him. This morning, I was going out after staff prayer at 7. I went to get a cup of coffee. And I noticed, if any of you live in the neighborhood, you've probably seen this before. For whatever reason, uh, the Fondren area around Meadowbrook has stray dogs. And it seems like every couple of months, there's a one or two or three. And this morning, there were three around that where they're building the district over there, a little bit north of that. There were three stray dogs, and there were four vehicles parked and five human beings out. And a couple of them had those leashes, you know, uh, Jennifer, like y'all got, like you let me borrow recently, just throw over your dog. And they were calling those dogs. And the dogs were reluctant. And the dogs were in danger. And the dogs were next to busy streets. And here were these humans saying, come to me. And one of the dogs, I noticed before I almost had a wreck, I noticed one of the dogs was barking 
loudly. Like he came close to one and was barking. That's about all I could see, and then I was gone. But I thought as I drove past, those in their hearts, they want to give, they want to save, they want to rescue, they want to provide a home and shelter and well being. But there is, in the heart of these wild animals, there's resistance, there's even rebellion. But let's play the scenario out in our minds, use our imagination, and just hope for the best in the future. Say one of those dogs is captured by one of those human beings. I bet you that human being would take care of that dog. And I bet you that dog, over time, would learn to trust that human being. And that dog is going to want to what? It's going to give back. It's going to want to give back. It's going to want to say thank you. It's going to be loyal. It's going to sit at the feet. It's going to realize who rescued and who provided. And I think about that this morning. I think, do you realize that you've been saved? Do you realize you've been rescued? Do you see God as a provider? And if you have, if you do, you're going to want to give back to him. And that's what worship is about. So let me be the preacher who says, let's break the back of the American idol mentality when it comes to worship on Sunday morning. You are more than a consumer. You are more than a viewer. It's not about you getting out your phones and texting in your vote to what you preferred. You are to come and gather with other believers and say, God, I want to give back to you because you have rescued me. Thank you. But listen, after having said that, I want to say to you, that we gain in worship. We gain when we worship. And in a word, if I had to say it, studying this this week, I would say the one word would be perspective. We gain perspective when we worship. Do you see what we've read this morning? This writer's got the, he, he struggles with doubt like you do. He looks at this world and says it doesn't seem right. And he's made a declaration of faith. But his feet are almost stumbling. His steps are nearly slipping because he's looking. And envy and doubt have crept into his heart. And if you're not careful, those flashing warning lights, if you don't heed them, they will take root and you will be unable to be a sincere worshiper of God. But when we gather and we have a sense of openness, we receive. We receive perspective. When I worship when we worship, our hearts can be filled with joy. When we worship, we can be grateful for what we have. When we worship, we can be filled with confidence because with God, all things are possible. When we worship, our spirit no longer fights. It's surrendered. And when your spirit is surrendered, you want to do the right thing. When you worship, you're humble before the greatness of God. You know, it's hard to be arrogant on bending knee. On the other hand, when we don't worship, we envy people and what they have. We become cynical and jaded and easily suspicious and self-preoccupied. We become negative. We become judgmental. We become keepers and recorders of what is wrong. We get easily angered. We're quickly defeated, easily discouraged by setbacks. When we don't worship, we don't really realize that so much is possible. And here, this collection by Asaph, he says, when I came into the sanctuary, I gained perspective. 
things changed for me. And it makes me wonder what can change for us. I don't want you to miss this. What perspective did he get? If you read it later, you'll see that he got perspective. I I would call it perspective on winning because it's out of kilter. How many of you remember, what was it, a couple years ago, Charlie Sheen, the Hollywood bad boy, his famous interview when he talked about winning? And he had openly declared his decadence. He was touting his sexual conquest and the number of women or goddesses he had that he were his prized possessions, the level of drugs, including the hard stuff he was doing. And in this sit-down interview with somebody famous, I don't recall, some of you do, but he kept going, winning, winning. And they were asking, what are you winning? He kept talking about his life and defense of the debauchery of the wickedness. And he said, I'm winning, I'm winning. You can think back a few months ago to Steve Harvey and Miss Universe. And my, my man, Steve Harvey, called out the winner of Miss Universe. And you know he called out the wrong winner of the Miss Universe. And within moments, he had to correct himself in front of millions of people. I remember watching that live thinking, man, I can't wait to watch The View tomorrow. This is going to be so uh, amazing, the discussion, the interaction. But he takes that crown from the winner to give to the real winner. Now let me ask you, who's winning? In essence, the psalmist is saying sometimes the people we think are winning really aren't winning. Even the people whose pride is their necklace, who say, look at my winnings, they're not really winning. Parents, I hope you know this as you parent, especially your teenagers. But which Miss Universe would you want to be? The first one that had her crown taken away or the second one that got to keep it? And the perspective that the psalmist gives us on winning is a long-haul perspective. Now, it it seems sudden. He goes into the sanctuary, probably gathered with other people like you're doing today, probably began to sing and says, here's the perspective that God gave me. Those who think they're winning, if it's wicked, if it's apart from Christ, they're not gonna win. You don't have to play judge, jury, and convictor. You don't have to play that. We can let God be God in this world. And God's going to work it out. He's going to sort it all out. Here's this struggle. Winning. What kind of crown? It's the one that's going to last. It's the one that can't be taken away. It reminds me of Romans 8.18. For our present suffering, for I consider, in other words, I've really thought about this, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. John Wesley, great preacher of old, the founder of the Methodist Church, he gives the illustration. I'm going to alter it a little bit, but he gives the illustration. He says, pretend that you have a great uncle and you didn't even know him. He didn't know you. But he died and he left you millions upon millions of dollars. And all you have to do is be summoned to the bank to collect your millions upon millions of dollars. And on your way driving to the bank, your clunker car breaks down. Now, what's going to happen to you in that scenario? You're not going to get out of your clunker car and shake your fist at God and shout obscenities and have envy by all the, at all the people driving their nice cars past you. Are you? 
You're gonna, what are you going to do? You're going to skip to Lou. You're just a mile from the bank. You're going to skip to Lou to the bank, and you're going to collect what's waiting for you. In this world, there are, as John Newton writes about in one of the most famous songs of all time, there are hardships, dangers, toils, hardships, snares. Because we're not home yet. Because we haven't collected what God has for us. I was out of town all week, and I got home Friday night late, technically Saturday morning at 1 a.m., and I had a, get this, I had a wedding rehearsal at 8 a.m. on Saturday morning. The wedding was last night. And as I went out to the reservoir at 8 a.m., I was on time, not bushy-eyed or bright-tailed, bright-eyed or bushy-tailed, whatever it is. I was there, and I gathered, and I met with this family in the corner right before we started the wedding was last night and the reason this family asked me to do this wedding was because 10 years ago I did a funeral for them and I was yesterday marrying the big brother but 10 years ago we did the funeral of the 11 year old son who died in his sleep. And we gathered, and they have since moved to Arkansas, most of them. Cody, the big brother that we married, is 6'8". But I remember the day when I pastored in the res and I got that call and went to that house and walked out with that ambulance. And yesterday morning, we knew that the joy of a wedding was awaiting us. It was about Cody and Shelby. But me and those parents, we were in a corner. And they started it, but we just cried. I didn't want to. I don't want to now. And I want it at the 11 o'clock, flushing it out of my system. I hadn't done this a while, if you think I'm weak. But I think of this family and the hardship and the toil and the snare. And I'm thankful for a God that sustains. I'm thankful for a God that unites us. I'm thankful for a God that brings peace into the deepest pain. For our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared for the glory that is to be revealed. To stand with that family. To think about young Daniel. To think about the future glory. So we just cried. And we wiped our faces. Practiced for a wedding. And had great joy. God is a sustainer. And God is good. And the psalmist says, when we enter the sanctuary, we gain perspective. We gain perspective that winning is not necessarily winning. And that sometimes you can lose and have great loss and you're going to be a winner. And God is going to, he's going to give you what you need to get through. His grace, it's that good. It's that good. 
So church, as we close the message that I've entitled Worship That Stirs Us, we're praying for a great fall that'll set us up for the next five years. And we're praying, I see some of you, I know you want our church to be a more worshiping church. You know, Sundays in America are tough. Sundays in America are a time where a lot of us gather together to look at our phones. But imagine if you came to receive. Imagine if you entered the sanctuary, i.e. Jim, to receive from him. There's a guy in our congregation right now. I'm going to call him out. His name is Charles Waller. You know Charles, some of you. And Charles will text me in the middle of the week. I love this. He'll text me in the middle of the week and say, what's the passage for Sunday? He wants to read ahead. He wants to go ahead and study it. He wants to prepare his heart. I pray that we would think more like that. To ready ourselves to worship God. At the end of this Psalm 73, there's some great declarations. You guide me with your counsel. You receive me to your glory. You hold me with your right hand. That's mentioned 166 times in all the Bible. God's right hand. You hold me with your right hand. You know, we sing things like that here. But what if we really sang it out? What if we really sang to him? What if when the offering plate rolled around, we would think things, not critically, but we would think things like, God, you are the most generous being in all the universe. And you give. I want to give back to you. Teach me to be a giver. Let me trust you, whether it's greed or fear that's gripping my heart, let me trust you and let generosity flow out of me. Do you know that God commands us to greet, to greet? What if you came to church, you entered the sanctuary, the gym, every Sunday, and you thought, how can I greet people? Because all around you, there are people made in the image of God. And greeting is an act of worship. What kind of worshiper are you? What kind of worshiper am I? What kind of worshipers can we become as a church? Before that famous passage in 2 Timothy 1.7 about how God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind, he says we lay hands on you to pray what? That your affections might be stirred up. So as we close today, I want to pray for us that in this place and in our future, that we would be a worshiping people, that that would be what stirred up in us, that we would be a people who long to ascribe worth to God. Would you bow? Would you pray with me?